Today it will be Psalm 9. We'll read that together. To the choir master, according to Muth Laben, which is a musical notation, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And our text this morning is the verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when is it more difficult to pray? When things are going well or when things are not going well? You would think it's easier to pray when things are going well. After all, when things are going well, you have the time to think, you have the headspace to really sit back and 
think about the Lord, about his work in your life. And that's harder to do when your mind is filled with troubles and anxiety. So in theory, you would think that prayer should be easier when things are going well. But that's not really how, how it often goes, does it? Many of us would, would likely admit that we feel unhappy with our prayer life, even when things are going well, maybe especially when things are going well. We tend to be easily distracted by the, <clears throat> excuse me, we tend to easily be distracted by the opportunities that are available to us. And when we do pray, we don't always get the sense that we're praying for the right things. We feel maybe that there's a, a lack of depth in our prayer life. We feel that we haven't quite gotten to the bottom of it, but we can't quite seem to find our way there. It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? So it, it would seem that, that prayer should be easier when things are not going well in your life. But that's not, not always true either. Sometimes you feel so confused when things are not going well. You feel so bewildered. You, you feel so lost. That prayer becomes very difficult. And you fumble your way from one prayer to the next in a kind of a daze, hoping that it'll all be over soon. So prayer is hard. And yet today we're studying Psalm 9 together. This psalm is an exuberant celebration of God's words, works. And if you look at this psalm, it seems to be written from the perspective of the good times. King David seems to be writing this psalm at the end of the hard times, and those hard times are still fresh enough in his mind that he has a, a clear memory of them, but he has the, the space now, so to speak, to, to look back on that, to see it for what it was. He's not in the middle of anything, or it seems that way, until you get to verse 13. In verse 11, he says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And then look at verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. So he talks about the afflicted, and then he mentions in passing that he is actually one of them. He's still very much in the middle of everything. But you would never guess that from the rest of these verses. You would never guess that from the rest of this prayer if, if these verses were removed. David seems to be quite hopeful. He seems almost exuberant. Why is that? Well, his hope is based on what he knows about God. And what he knows about God is that God stays the same, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how we feel about them, regardless of what we think about them. Our text says the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You have not forsaken those who seek you. So his hope is not just theoretical. His hope comes from experience. He says the Lord is a stronghold. He's always been a stronghold. Boys and girls, do you know what a stronghold is? A stronghold is a fortified place, like a castle. 
a place where you go for security and for survival. Maybe some of you have seen pictures before of castles in Europe, maybe like Neuschwanstein in Bavaria, for instance, and you look at these solid walls, and you realize that those could hold out for a very long time. And it's saying the Lord is a stronghold, even much more so than that. He's always been a stronghold. A stronghold, a fortified place to which you retreat for security and for survival. He says the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. And he's learned that over time, and he knows that to be true, whether things are going well or whether they're not going well. In fact, if you read this psalm, David spends very little time focusing on his circumstances. He spends most of his time in the psalm pointing to God. He's overwhelmed by the power and the glory and the grandeur of God. And what, what is striking is that what he says in our text this morning is true not just for him. This is true for all of God's people. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, all of them. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This is not just about David. This is about us all. And that, that stands to reason, right? Because the nature of a stronghold is that it outlasts the generations. Um, these, these castles in Europe have stood there for many centuries and, and a stronghold is built to outlast the generations. It doesn't change. And if that's already true on an earthly level, then imagine how much more it would be true for the Lord Himself, who is eternal. So the Lord is a stronghold for those who seek Him. And we understand that better in the hard times. The hard times reveal something of the work of God in our lives. But we need to understand that the Lord does not only work in our lives during difficult times, He works in our lives all the time. He doesn't call us to come to Him only when things are hard. He is a stronghold for all times. The Lord is a stronghold for all who seek Him. And so that's how we'll also approach this text this morning, that the Lord is a stronghold for those who seek Him. He is a stronghold in the hard times, and He is a stronghold at all times. So, let's look at this psalm again more closely. If you look at the opening words here, you notice it's a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving. What does he give thanks for? Why does he praise God? Well, very concretely, because of his deeds, right? Verse 1, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Psalm 9 is very much a, a psalm, as many of them do. It, it looks back across God's history with God's people and God's history, especially with David as king over God's people. It's not just about his personal well-being, but his personal well-being is closely tied to the well-being of God's people because David is their king. So he's not just looking at this from the perspective of his own personal experiences, even if it may seem that way sometimes. The stage that he's working on is much greater than that. In a way, the stage was already set in Psalm 8. Because when you think about God's deeds, what comes to mind first? What are God's deeds? Well, most obviously, most clearly, God's deeds are His work of creation. Creation reveals the glory of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. 
God's glory is the weight of His splendor, His majesty. As the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins once wrote, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And Psalm 8 reflects this with a burning intensity. David is amazed, overwhelmed with the grandeur of God. And then later on he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, So not only is David amazed at God's greatness, but he is amazed at God's care. He's amazed that a God such as this would have anything to do with human beings at all. We are like nothing compared to God, and yet God cares for us. There's a sense of amazement at God's glory, a sense of amazement that God cares. And now we're psalm this morning. Psalm 9 comes right after Psalm 8. It's still trailing clouds of glory, so to speak, from that. Psalm 9 is a psalm of redemption, and if you look at these two together, you realize creation is already a great work of God, and if creation was all that he had done, then we would still have plenty of reasons to praise him. But creation is only a stage. Creation is only a stage for the other great work of God, his work of redemption. Creation is a place where God is living, moving, and active, It's a place where the nations are rebuked and the wicked perish. It is a place where the enemy is ruined and his name blotted out. It is a place where sin happens, where sin is punished ultimately, where sin is atoned for. So this psalm is meant to expand our mind with praise. And this is our problem. This is why it's so hard for us to pray is because it is so hard for us to praise because we so often lose sight of what these psalms are presenting to us. We don't see things from this perspective. And you cannot pray before you praise. You cannot properly pray to God until you first learn to praise God. And this is, this is why our approach to prayer is so often wrong. We don't treat it seriously until we have a serious problem. And then we pray about that problem. Well, David begins this psalm with praise and thanksgiving, even though he's got problems too. He's got king-sized problems. Problems so bad that in verse 13 he says, he is at the very gates of death. Look at this, you who lift me up from the gates of death. But he praises. He can't help himself because he's seeing the whole picture. He sees God's glory as creator, God's glory as judge, and that evokes praise, and it makes him very confident that God is a refuge. That's the only way that you can really understand that God is a stronghold for the oppressed when you're going through times of trouble is, is through praise. And you can't praise until your praise is fueled by the sorts of things that are being described for us in Psalm 8 and 9. Now, we don't usually have such an expansive perspective, do we? How often is our spiritual life not plagued by little nagging doubts? Doubts about God's goodness, doubts about God's love, doubts about God's intentions, doubts about God's actions, those little nagging doubts that drain the vitality out of your faith, that can suck the life out of it, that can wring the power out of it. And then when we read a psalm like this, it no longer resonates with us. It might even seem dissonant. 
because we've lost touch with what Scripture is telling us. But here's our problem. Our world is tiny. Our world is tiny. And the modern world is not becoming bigger. It's becoming smaller. We know so much more and in some ways so much less. Our world is tiny. It's constrained by our own misplaced priorities. And this psalm puts it all back in perspective. It says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, and what a stronghold He is. What a God He is. And it says to us, you need to reckon with this God. You need to take this seriously. He is your refuge, and you need this refuge. You need this. You need this stronghold. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, says our text. Who are the oppressed? Literally, it means those who are crushed. Those who are crushed. Those who are trampled underfoot. Those who are ground away. Those who are overwhelmed by the enemy. Maybe we don't have any enemies that we're aware of, but then you think about what the catechism says. Your your enemies are the devil, the world, and your own flesh. So we do actually have enemies. And sometimes we, we feel crushed and oppressed, maybe not by any one person in particular, but by circumstances. There's a lot in here that we can relate to. It's hard. It's a harrowing place to be, to feel overwhelmed. And it's hard to hold on to this perspective when your face feels like it's being ground into the dust. But here's the thing. Faith is not just about holding on to a perspective. Faith is holding on to a person. Faith is seeking refuge in the Lord who has promised to be our stronghold. When do you retreat to the stronghold? When everything else has failed. When you have nothing else left to give, when you have no other resources, when you're at the end of your means, you retreat to the stronghold. The Lord is a stronghold for those who seek Him, but when do we seek Him the most? Is it not true that we often seek Him when things are not going well? And then we lose focus on Him when things are going better. And again, that's our problem. We're so busy with our own lives, our own perspectives. And then we really lose the context of the rest of the psalm. We don't see God exalted in His glory as Creator. We don't see God exalted in His glory as Redeemer. Instead, we're busy with our own lives, our own priorities, our own projects, our own plans. And then then the psalm doesn't fit. We don't understand verses 9 and 10 because we haven't understood the rest of the psalm. If we focus on the rest of it, then God's mighty deeds of creation, on on God's mighty deeds of creation, on His mighty deeds of redemption, then verses 9 and 10 are a perfect fit. See, you need to see all of this in light of what we confess in Belgian Confession Article 13. Here we read that we believe that this good God, after He had created all things, did not abandon them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that according to His holy will, He so rules and governs them that in this world nothing happens without His direction. So see, it says God did not abandon His works. God did not give us up to fortune and chance. God is right in the middle of this world, ruling it, directing it, Even when we lose our focus on Him, He has not lost His focus on us. Now, how can we be sure of that? 
because he is committed to his people, because he's faithful to us. He's with us. God has always been with us. That's what it means when it says that God is our stronghold. This is what what believers have confessed throughout the millennia. Think of King Solomon after he dedicated the temple some 3,000 years ago. He says, the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. He's looking back on the thousands of years before that and saying, God is with us as he was with our fathers. May he continue to be with us. And then here we are looking back and saying the same thing. The ultimate expression of God with us is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this even better than Solomon did. He, he is our Emmanuel, Jesus is. That's what the name means. God with us is Emmanuel. That's the name that he was given. In Christ, God has taken away the one thing that could prevent us from finding refuge in him, and that is our sin. Because if we didn't have Christ, then the words of Psalm 3 would, or the words of verse 3 would be true of us as well. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. This is all of us without Christ. We stumble and perish before God's presence. But we belong to Christ. When we belong to Christ, we can be sure that God is committed to us. His greatest deed of redemption is to redeem sinners from sin. His greatest deed of creation is to create for himself a new people. God is not at work, was not only at work in the past. God is very much at work today. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our refuge. He is our stronghold in a world full of sin, a world that suffers from the consequences of sin. Christ himself came to bring the gospel of salvation. And that gospel was him, that he was is not merely our judge, but that he is our refuge. The gospel of God's presence in our lives. And before he ascended to heaven, he reminded us of that one more time. These are his last words. And you pay, you pay attention to someone's last words. His last words on earth to his disciples were, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am your refuge. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. I will not be overrun. I am a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. That's what he says. And so we need to reckon with the Lord's presence in our lives. And to do that requires more than just that we pray to him when we're oppressed. That means understanding that we live all of our lives in the presence of God. It is because of God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ that we are not consumed. It is because of God's mercy in Christ that the holy God, the one who has established his throne for justice, who judges the world with righteousness, who judges the peoples with uprightness, is our stronghold in times of trouble. It's because of him. It's so much more than we deserve. We too deserve God's judgment and death over our sins. Yet the God of life calls us to take refuge in him. And that's why we need to give thanks with our whole heart. That motivates us to seek him. Not guilt. Not the sense that, oh, I should probably be working on my spiritual life more. No, 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 no. That stage is far too small. That is the wrong motivation. This is something very different that he's talking about. We are motivated to seek him because of 
what he has done for us in Christ. And when we understand that, we are motivated to seek him not just in the hard times, but at all times, which is our second point. Verse 10 of our text says, Those who know your name put their trust in you. What is God's name? His name is his reputation. His name is his track record. As we saw, as we remembered from Psalm 8, God has revealed himself in creation. He's also revealed himself in redemption. Those are all works of God. They're reflected again in the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, in uh, Exodus 20, the Sabbath day is kept because of creation. In six days you shall labor and do all your work. And in Deuteronomy 5, it's because of redemption. You shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt. It's interesting, isn't it? It's these both, both these aspects of God's revelation that come out in, in uh, the Ten Commandments as they're recorded for us in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. So God has revealed himself. We have all of these works recorded in his word, even at that most basic level. God's word is his track record, the record of all of those deeds that David refers to in verse 1. And as we begin to understand that, as we start to see these things in perspective, to believers there grows a desire to maintain that, that reputation of God, to praise Him for who He is, for what He does, and to put our trust in Him. And that's what he says here. David says, those who know your name, verse 10, put their trust in you. Now consider for a moment how remarkable it is that we know God's name in the first place. God was under no obligation to reveal himself to any of us. He was under no obligation to reveal himself to you. He was under no obligation to reveal himself to me. In a different time and place, we would have grown up knowing nothing. But God revealed himself to us. God reveals himself to sinners, and he does not only reveal himself to sinners, he is involved in their lives. That's not something we would do. We tend to be very careful about the kinds of people that we associate with, right? Because we, we understand that some of their bad reputation might rub off on us. So we're very careful about the types of people that we associate with. Well, God is not like that at all. God has a long track record of associating himself with people who do not deserve it. Think of Abraham, for instance. God called him out of a world of idolatry. Consider the people of Israel. God brought them to the promised land even though he had to put up with a grumbling for all those years. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ when he came. He, he ate with sinners. And that was one of the things the Pharisees could not figure out about him. They said, how can this be? This man eats with tax collectors and sinners. We don't understand he becomes involved in their lives, and God still does that. He still laid his claim. He laid his claim on our lives, even at our baptism. See, we like someone to prove themselves before we want to associate ourselves with them. We like to, to watch from a distance, and then when we feel comfortable, we draw closer. God connected his name to ours, knowing ahead of time what we would be like, and before we had an opportunity to prove ourselves. In any way, he laid his claim on our lives. He has a reputation for coming through for his people. He calls his people. He reveals his name to his people. 
He has an unbroken track record of coming through for them. And, you know, Scripture provides us with plenty of examples again. Think of Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Moses is at the edge of the promised land with the people. Second time there, they've spent 40 years wandering in the desert, 40 years picking their way among the rocks and the shrubbery of the wilderness. And Moses looks back on that, and he says to the people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be in fear or be in dread of them, your enemies. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. If God has been with you so far, would he not continue doing so, he says. And God proved himself faithful even when his people sinned. In Nehemiah 9, the leaders of the people have returned to Jerusalem after the exile. So they have sinned so much that they were removed from the promised land, God's people. They were brought into exile among the heathen nations again. And God did not forget his promises. He takes his people out, the remnant. He brings them back. And so the leaders of the people in Nehemiah 9 are standing together in worship, confessing their sins to God, their sins also on behalf of the people. And in Nehemiah 9 verse 31 they say, In your great mercies you did not make an end of them, your people, or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a stronghold that you can count on. And nowhere else did he prove this more clearly than in the life and in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus made it possible for God to be our stronghold. You know, if you think about it, there's only one believer who has ever been rejected by God. There's only one true believer who was ever rejected by God, and that was Jesus. He knew God's name better than anyone else. He was the embodiment of God's reputation. In his life on earth as a man, he trusted God. When he hung on the cross, bearing our sin, he called out to God, and God did not answer him. God did not answer him. You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you, but that one time, the one man who, who more than anyone else deserved not to be forsaken, was forsaken. He called out to God. God did not answer him. The words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then a little later, if you read Psalm 22, it says, and you, our fathers, put their trust, they trusted in you, delivered them, they cried to you and were saved, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. So Jesus, hanging on the cross, abandoned by God as a man, still trusted God, still confessed that God had a long history with his people by invoking this psalm, believed that in the end God would stay true to his promises, that he would satisfy his justice, that he would also redeem his people. Jesus died to make that possible. Jesus did this so that as the forum for the celebration of the Lord's Supper puts it so well, we might be accepted by God and nevermore be forsaken by Him. So verse 10 of our text says, You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And if you look at this verb tense, you have not forsaken, 
Um, the particular verb tense used here, especially in the original language, shows it's an ongoing thing. God has not forsaken. He continues not to forsake His people. He just doesn't. And maybe you struggle with believing that. Maybe you feel like you have been seeking God and you wonder, where is He? But our text is very clear on this point. You are only one person in a very long history of God's people. And look at the evidence. God has never forsaken His people. It's not something that He does. God does not forsake those who seek Him. God will not forsake us, but He does call us to take His name, His reputation seriously. What does that mean for us? It means that our lives need to be characterized by a seeking trust. Knowing God, seeking God are not incidental things in life. It's not something you do only on Sunday or only on Tuesday morning or Tuesday night or only on Wednesday or only on any other day of the week. These things are central to our existence. We know God by studying the Scriptures, by understanding what his reputation means, and then by walking with him. We seek God in regular prayer, and our text reassures us, you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You think about this. God is only one prayer away. He is only one prayer away. And when you pray in the full awareness of who he is, he displaces all other things in your life, and that is when you experience him as a stronghold. Maybe that hasn't been your experience. But then maybe you should ask yourself, what were you looking for? What were you expecting? Were you expecting deliverance from your circumstances? From the things that trouble you? Well, God does sometimes deliver us from those things, the things that we pray about. But sometimes He doesn't. And David experienced that as well. Look at the opening words of Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God does sometimes deliver us from the things we pray about. Sometimes He doesn't. It seems to be a very different kind of experience that David has here in Psalm 10, verse 1. But did you know something? Psalm 9 and 10 actually belong together. Originally, they were part of one long acrostic poem. So these are not two separate psalms in a way. In Psalm 9, he says that God is a refuge. In Psalm 10, he says that God feels far away. But both of those things belong together. In fact, you could say, because it's an acrostic poem, right? One that follows the alphabet. You could say this is the ABCs of faith. Sometimes God feels close. Sometimes he feels far away. Sometimes we see injustice defeated. Sometimes it seems to flourish. Sometimes we understand. Sometimes we don't. Look at David crying out in verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Sometimes we wonder what God is doing. Why does he let, let us come all the way to the gates of death? Why does he make us wait so long? How will we possibly deal with everything that is going on? And you know, those questions are a normal part of a life of faith. God may not directly answer our concerns. He may not answer them immediately. He may not answer them in the way that we were expecting. But we can be sure, absolutely sure of one thing. Because of Jesus Christ, God is our stronghold. 
a stronghold that remains when everything else falls away. You know, believers need to reckon with this, but unbelievers need to reckon with the Lord's presence as well. Acts 17 verse 31 says, He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. If God is not your stronghold, you will face his justice on your own. And that judgment is coming. It is ongoing already in a sense. Starting at verse 4, it says, You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Feel the weight of God's judgment. And then starting at verse 15, the the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Think about all the nations that have gone before you on this great stage of creation. Think about what happened to them. Where are they? Hittites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. Nations. Nations under judgment. Look at the world that we live in. The wicked snared in the work of their own hands. If God is not your stronghold, he is your adversary. And that is a terrifying prospect. You can ignore everything that this psalm says. But at some point, you're going to have to give account to him. Unbelievers need to reckon with the Lord's presence, and so do believers. We cannot live without reckoning with him. Not as an afterthought but as the only constant that we have in a world full of change. Maybe in considering these things, you realize you have drifted. Maybe this morning you are reminded again that you have not reckoned with the Lord's presence in your life as much as you should have. Maybe that's affected your prayer and your attitude. If that's you, then today's the day to return. Because you know what? We may not always reckon with the Lord, but He always reckons with us. He always He does not forget his own. He remembers us. He is your stronghold. He has revealed his name. He calls you to seek you, and he promises he will never forsake you. Amen.